0: that purpose. Today is going to be the fourth episode of the Purpose Book Club on Blood Meridian. We are going to kind of go over basically the end of the book and we'll have a little bit of a wrap-up episode next week. Um, I believe when we last spoke, when I last, uh, on the last episode, we ended with um, the judge conversating on war. Uh, We're going to continue on that kind of basis. I'm skipping over a lot of the plot and a lot of the story that you're going to get on the book on your own, uh, because hopefully you're reading this. Um, Some of it kind of matters, some of it kind of doesn't, but uh, we're going to hit the main points in the last section of the book, and now that you've gotten here, uh, the the last section of the book is going to be from the uh, basically They come up to this uh, river crossing on the Colorado River in Yuma, uh, Arizona, and because the Colorado River is, you know, big and wide, they uh, have a ferry there that allows people to cross, and the Glanton Gang takes over this ferry from this doctor that was uh there operating it charging kind of a high price but uh glanton basically talks him into i think the judge actually talks him into uh t- letting the glanton gang take over operations and pay him a small fee or something like that uh, they end up just completely stealing the ferry and um completely stealing the ferry they get into it with some yuma's uh, yuma indians in there uh it doesn't really all matter there was a cannon on the ferry that uh the glanton gang used to wipe out a bunch of indians that becomes relevant a little bit later but anyway uh the glanton gang is is just absolutely using and abusing this ferry um people come up and they want to cross and glanton like doubled or tripled the price at first and then uh then he started just stealing people's shit and not even letting them cross or sometimes he would let them cross and sometimes he would just kill them um really just kind of shit bags <laughs> honestly um they take over this ferry, and it, it really sucks uh they're, they're just killing people for no reason and they've amassed this uh massive wealth of, of gold and money and possessions that uh people have either given them to cross or they've just stolen from people and killed people um So basically what happens is they screw over the the Yuma's the Yuma's want to attack I believe the way they set it up is that the Yuma's want to attack the fairy Uh, Glanton says yeah, we'll do that and then when they go to attack the Glanton gang just decimates these Yuma Indians just completely betrays them um, Just decimates them. Well the Yuma's come back with (laughs) a vengeance um, To say the least they uh, they come back and their goal is to completely massacre the whole Glanton gang Uh, completely ruined the Glanton gang and in in between there some things happen. so um, one kind of important note that you may have noticed is that they they picked up um, this uh, this idiot and his brother they call him an idiot basically he's uh, this mentally retarded person that um, they've been keeping in a cage his brother is this traveling. I believe he's an ex-doctor. I forgot to check that fact, but, um, he travels around with his mentally retarded brother in a cage and, um, he's a sideshow and he charges people to go in and see, uh, his mentally retarded brother in a cage, like covered in his own feces, um, which happened back in the day. I mean, obviously you hear that and it makes you completely uncomfortable. It's because, it's meant to and that's what they did back in the days they, they couldn't really fathom why somebody was like that and uh, as you well know human rights are not really a, a thing <laughs> in this book um nor were they in that amount you know in that pastime um things were pretty uh pretty grotesque and savage and that's exactly what that was as he was his brother was mentally incapable uh, I think his mom died their mom died and so they sent the brother out to be with him and he needed money so he started charging people to come and look at his uh, his idiot brother as they call him um, so basically they get there and there's some women over here at this crossing uh, one of them is actually a, a historical woman that actually existed. Uh, it's Sarah Borg um, she actually existed not that it matters but, um, what they do is they, they find this idiot, all the women and they start to feel sorry for him, which who wouldn't, uh, they drag his ass out of the cage and they take him over into the river and wash him up. And it's kind of, uh, basically it's the death of, of basically the way that this guy on youtube described it when i when I listened to it and i thought it was a good thought is that uh you're watching in in a short chapter i believe it's chapter 18 uh you're watching the death of what was formerly the idiot the the completely savage spectacle um when they wash him up and they put him in new clothes and uh, they get him all fixed up and then uh It was kind of odd because the idiot goes into the river because he likes to be in the river, I guess, uh, in like the middle of the night and almost drowns. And then the judge uh, picks him up by his heels and uh, hauls him back out of the river. And uh, it, it was kind of, it's weird in the way that this guy, I believe his name is John David Elbert, on YouTube kind of described it was like a death and then a rebirth at the hands of the judge um it, it it's just weird imagery and i don't really know why uh but the judge kind of adopts the idiot as a pet um it uh, carries him around not carries him around but drags him around on a leash and the idiot goes with the judge wherever and becomes the judge's pet i don't really know why that is um I don't know, Uh, you know, I think it could have a little bit to do with the fact that the judge uh, is super, super manipulative, um, and he just likes having people around that he can manipulate, and we'll get into why that's important later uh, with the kid. But anyway, all that being said, um, that is is another thing that I want to, I don't know that I can continue without saying it is that um as you read this book and as you listen to my episodes uh, if you've gotten this far you may think that there are some pretty bad words um in this book particularly the word nigger that appears in this book over and over again um guys if you're going to be reading books like this if you're going to be studying history which you should um you need to understand that uh words that were used back then obviously in a negative connotation are not claiming that any of these words were used positively. Um, but that they didn't have the same set of rules and morals and stuff that we do now. Uh, and it's important for these books and this podcast and, um, the analysis of, of history to display the uncomfortable parts of history. And if you have a particular problem with a particular word, um, the thing is that there were a bunch of words like this and particularly the word idiot um it was used in a completely derogatory manner um as against somebody who is mentally retarded and even even nowadays people when i say mentally retarded would probably not appreciate that and if you use the word retarded in any other sense, which i do often um just as everybody does um especially anybody that grew up in in my circumstances, you know, in the early 2000s, the word retarded was thrown around a lot. A lot of people are upset with that. Um, well, the word idiot meant the exact same thing back in, you know, I guess the 1800s. Um, apparently, I mean, it's, it's used very derogatorily or fool um, used in a very derogatory fashion, um, towards this dude that is mentally retarded. So, um, developmentally, developmentally challenged, I guess, is the way that you should properly say it. But anyway, my point with this is that, um, it's important to understand the context of these words and how the words, uh, meaning changes. And again, understand that if you're upset with me, um, or the book or anything like that, using certain words like heathen, savage, nigger, all of these words that are in this book, um, It's supposed to make you uncomfortable, and then when you look at, oh, why can these words not even be said when they're being quoted out of a book? I mean, people get legitimately upset when you just quote these words out of a book. Um, From the time period of the 1800s when these words were said, we can't just ignore uh, that these words were said and that these things were said, and we can't just substitute a different word. Uh, I want you to think of of why certain words are outlawed and certain words were allowed to say, you'll call your brother an idiot. Uh, People... In church, will call each other idiots. The most politically correct people on the face of the planet will call each other idiots, and it's used in just as derogatory of a fashion uh, in this book as the word "nigger." So, that's something incredibly. I think important for us to understand is not to, um, wash history out and embrace all the uncomfortable parts of it. Because now seeing how bad, I guess the point for me is that seeing how bad the word idiot was used in the past, it, when I go into my regular life, you know, I don't avoid calling anybody an idiot because it does have a different meaning nowadays, but I just think about it a little bit. And I think about, um, the changes in language and the changes in in context from times back then versus the times now, and I think that's something that books like this can um, can really help us do is is understanding context, language, and society from a, a different perspective, a perspective that precedes us, um, and it's it's important. So, I just wanted to note that that um, this again, it's supposed to make you uncomfortable and. I really want you to analyze why certain things make you uncomfortable versus other things in the book. And I'm just using the word idiot as an example. There are plenty of other examples um, in the book that things that make you uncomfortable that maybe were said or done in the past that are normal today or things like that. Um, Just be on the lookout for for stuff like that and I know we're going to have more uncomfortable situations uh, in the future. So. If you're upset at the certain words that I'm saying on the podcast, quoting out of the book, uh, that's kind of the reasoning for it. Is that it's supposed to make you uncomfortable, and if you get super upset about it, other than the fact that it just makes you uncomfortable, or, or all of the 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 justifiable reasons to be upset, there are plenty of justifiable reasons to be upset when certain words are said. But just the fact that it's being said is is not a good enough reason, uh, to be upset about it. So, um, just do a little evaluation on that. And that's, that's one thing that I really took, I guess, took away from the book is the understanding that the past is completely different, uh, than the present and that, um, what can we learn about, um, the sad or disappointing truths of the past, I think is kind of where I was going with all that. Um, so anyway, where I want to start is, uh, this just something that adds to the massive quality of the judge, um, and his ability to kind of always get out of everything. Uh, the Yumas come back and really, uh, just absolutely, I, I believe they surprise the Glanton gang in the early morning. Uh, Black Jackson, which, if, uh, if I don't know that I've talked about him very much, uh, in the podcast, but if you've read the book, if you're reading the book, you know who I'm talking about. Black Jackson uh, has an arrow go clean through him. I mean, it was a pass-through, as we like to say in archery. Um, just completely through him while he's standing there peeing in the river in the morning. Uh, and then another arrow hits him, and then another arrow hits him uh, in the early morning. And so the humans have come. Uh, they're pissed off, as they should be. I mean, their people just got absolutely you know, demolished by the Glanton gang uh, in an act of betrayal. Um, so they come back to take their revenge. Uh, they go in there and I believe they behead the, um, the Lincoln's quarters, the, the doctor that they got the ferry off of. Uh, then they go into Glanton's chamber and, uh, not much was said. Um, but the Yuma's basically take a war axe. The, I guess the leader of the Yuma's, uh, gets up on the, uh gets up on the bed with glanton Uh, glanton sits up and he's yelling at him and uh the dude raised uh oh yeah the old man i guess the leader of the humans said he raised the axe and split the head of john joel glanton to the thrapple so uh completely chops his head in half which is a violent gruesome imagery um splits his head you know in half hot dog style and uh kind of wild uh, but you know glanton gets exactly what he deserves you know live by the sword die by the axe i guess live by the gun die by the axe um but this is just it's funny but it's not funny um it says when they entered the judge's quarters they found the idiot and a girl of perhaps 12 years cowering naked in the floor behind them also naked stood the judge he was holding leveled at them the bronze barrel of the howitzer the wooden truck stood in the floor The straps pried up and twisted off of the pillow blocks. The judge had the cannon under one arm, and he was holding a lighted cigar over the touch hole. The Yumas fell over one another backwards, and the judge put the cigar in his mouth and took up his portmanteau and stepped out the door and backed past them and down the embankment. The idiot, who who reached just to his waist, stuck close to his side, and together they entered the wood at the base of the hill and disappeared from sight. So basically uh, this cannon that, um, was at the ferry that they decimated the humans with, uh, this big heavy, it calls it a howitzer, but it's not the like the typical, um, train mounted howitzers that, uh, you would note, which is what I thought it was. And then again, I, you know, thinking about it, those didn't come on until later. And, uh, that guy, John David Elbert, that I was telling you about, um, he, uh, he said that it, it was just like a regular cannon. So. Um, but anyway, the dude's just holding in his arm, which it's still this massive piece of iron that is hard as hell for anybody to, you know, muster up. You know, has got it under one arm, but they opened the door and the judges got the cannon. And uh, when it says they uh, fell over one another backward, um, apparently, I don't think he shot them. With the cannon, I when I first read this, uh, I thought he blew him away with the cannon. I was, I thought that was fucking metal. I thought that was cool as hell um, that he just held the cannon and shot it. But uh, apparently, coming back and reading this and hearing other people talk about it, uh, they were just falling over one another to, to they just didn't want to fuck with him. They're like, okay, we're out and the, and they left. Um, so which I mean you would too if you know you open the door and somebody's got a cannon pointed at you, um, but, (laughs) anyway, uh, so, he takes the idiot and runs off, and, I mean, again, just speaking to how evil this dude is, he's apparently raping a 12-year-old girl, so, it's nice, I guess, um, Toad Vine and the kid do end up, uh, making it out, um, and I believe that there's only there's very few people that make it out. It's it's the idiot, the judge, Toadvine, the kid, the ex priest Tobin, and then Davy Brown, uh, who Davy Brown wasn't even there. If you read the book, he actually went out to uh, I want to say like San Diego for something, and then um, never made it back for the massacre. So, um, but they will eventually run into him later in the in the book, and you see that. Um, so basically, they're out running uh, in this desert and headed to California. I believe that the kid ends up in Los Angeles, but um, they're going through this desert, and the judge um, judge ends up finding them. Uh, the kid's still got his pistol, and it's the only weapon uh, that they all have, um, and the judge offers to buy it off of him. Of course, the kid's not that stupid, because he knows that the judge is going to shoot him, Um so they go on this kind of long and hard to read um back and forth of the judge hunting down the kid uh the kid trying not to get hunted down uh the ex-priest uh saying a bunch of weird shit along the way and telling the kid that he needs to shoot the judge that this is the only chance you'll get you need to shoot the judge you need to shoot the judge uh the kid ends up shooting two of the horses so that the judge can't uh you know Right after them, quickly shoots two of the horses and they get a, get away. The judge finds them again. Uh, they hide in the desert under I think they hunt, hide under a wagon or something like that. And the judge is just walking uh, back and forth in front of them, looking for the kid and, and mumbling shit. Um, so basically, uh, one thing that the judge said that I thought was pretty important, and so did a couple other people. Um, he's walking about and he can't see the kid, but uh, he knows that the kid can hear him. He says, The priest has led you to this boy. I know you would not hide. I know, too, that you've not the heart of a common assassin. I've passed before your gun sights twice this hour and will pass a third time. Why not show yourself? No assassin called the judge and no partisan either. There's a flawed place in the fabric of your heart. Do you think I could not know? You alone were mutinous. You alone reserved in your soul some corner of clemency for the heathen. The imbecile stood and raised its hands to its face and yammered weirdly and sat again. You think I've killed Brown and Toadvine? They are as al- they are of alive as you and me. They are alive and in possession of the fruits of their election. Do you understand? Asked the priest. The priest knows. The priest does not lie. The priest does not lie. The judge raised his parasol and adjusted his parcels. Perhaps he called. Perhaps you have seen this place in a dream, that you would die here. Then he descended the esker and passed once more across the boneyard, led by the tethered fool, until the two were shimmering and insubstantial in the waves of the heat, and they were gone altogether. So, basically what he's saying here is that uh, the priest has led him to be a coward, which I think is... um, Kinda of silly. Of course, everything that the judge says is a little silly, but um he says, I know you would not hide. I know too that you've not the heart of a common assassin. I've passed before your gun sights twice this hour and will pass a third time. Why not show yourself? No assassin called the judge, and no partisan either. Um basically the judge is saying, You haven't shot me, so I know that you're not, you know, he knows that he's not a coward and that the that the priest has talked him into hiding um basically it's he's saying you know you alone were mutinous you alone reserved in your soul some corner of clemency for the heathen uh he's saying that he's noticed this whole time that the kid has some sort of uh not affinity but empathy for the heathen that the kid's never been all in on just killing indians um, the kid has never been just the you know the engine slayer that the rest of them were. he's just not that um he doesn't feel like that he doesn't feel like these guys uh and it was very clear to the judge and it was very, very disappointing to the judge um so you know why the kid doesn't shoot the judge I don't know uh It's discussed multiple times that the kid is one of the best shots. Um, Why he doesn't, I don't know. So, anyway, um, they run into a group of Indians, nothing really happens. Uh, The kid ends up in Los Angeles, and they throw him in jail. Um, So, basically, he comes, and uh, he's in jail, and the judge finds him, and basically the judge they they asked the judge the judge knows the kid and they asked the judge what the deal with the kid is he's gone half crazy he's got oh that's another important point is that he's got an arrow in his leg uh i believe he got shot uh with an arrow by the yumas when they were chasing them um so he's got an arrow in his leg and he ends up in a los angeles jail So he says, uh, yeah, one morning he woke to find the judge standing at his cage, hat in hand, smiling down at him. He was dressed in a suit of gray linen, and he wore new polished boots. So the judge's in a new suit, uh, new boot goofing, and uh, they asked him to come and speak, you know, about the kid, Ask him if he was already, you know, always crazy. Um, So... Basically, the judge tries to manipulate the kid again and blame him for uh, the Glanton massacre. Tells you know the jailers that he's to blame. Uh, he says, uh, "I believe that it is their intention to hang you." This is on page 318. It's going to be chapter 22. He says, uh, "What do they aim to do with me?" I believe it is their intention to hang you. What did you tell them? Told them the truth that you were the person responsible, not that we have all the details, but they understood it that it was you and none other who shaped events along such a calamitous course ev- uh eventuating in the massacre at the ford by the savages with whom you conspired means and ends are of little moment here idle speculations but even though you carry the draft of your murderous plan with you to the grave it will nonetheless be known in all of it in, it, in all its infamy to your maker and as that is so so shall it be known to the least of men all in the fullness of time you're the one that's crazy said the kid the judge smiled no it was never me but why lurk there in the shadows come here and we can talk you and me so basically um the judge is, is trying to put it in his head that the kid is, and, and to the jailers, that the kid is responsible for the massacre because he conspired with the Indians. That he never had the hatred towards the Indians, so he must be conspiring with him, which is all nonsense. Um, it really is. It, it, it's all nonsense. It doesn't exactly add to the mystery of the book or anything like that. Um, so, he says, uh, he looked down the hallways. Don't be afraid. I'll speak softly. It's not for the world's ears, but for yours only. Let me see you. Don't you know that I'd have loved you like a son? So this goes back to that theory that uh, basically the reason that um, he's so disappointed is that the judge is so disappointed is that he finds this kid. And, and if you go back to um, the judge's thoughts on raising children, he said that, you know, children should be thrown in you know a pit with dogs and uh, be made to fight and, and come out and... Uh, be you know this machine of war this is what he always wanted the kid to be the moment that he met the kid he knew that the kid was going to be skilled and have a taste for violence um he knew that he could shape this kid and or he thought that he could shape this kid in the way that he wanted to shape him and when he was unable to do that um when he was unable to do that he basically um he just got really disappointed in the kid uh and you'll note sorry you'll notice that um, the kid is never disillusioned with uh, the words of the judge the kid always knows that the judge is full of shit anytime that the judge talks to the kid he calls him out not really calls him out but just says you know here you're the one that's crazy he's the only character in the whole book that um, the judge is never able to sway in one way or another with his eloquent words you know Tobin um, eventually fell for the judge's gunpowder uh, the kid never really falls for the judge. Uh, the kid never really, um, gives in to the judge's eloquent words and, and manipulation. And that just irritates the shit out of the judge. That This is the one kid, guy, man, that he was never able to manipulate. Um, and you can see that in here. So, um... Basically he's talking much of nonsense. Oh yeah, so basically it comes in here. He says uh, on page three nineteen, still chapter twenty two He spoke softly into the dim mud cubicle. You came forward, he said, to take part in a work, but you were a witness against yourself. You sat in judgment on your own deeds. You put your own allowances before the judgments of history, and you broke with with the body of which you were pledged, apart and poisoned it in all its enterprise hear me man i spoke in the desert for you and you you, sorry i spoke in the desert for you and you only and you turned a deaf ear to me if war is not holy man nothing is but antic clay even the Cretan, even the Cretan, acted in good faith according to its parts for it was required of no man for it was required of no man to give more than he possessed nor was it any man's shared compared to one another's Only each was called upon to empty out his heart into the common, and one did not. Can you tell me who that was? Who that one was? Sorry again for my reading. I apologize. Um, I can't read out loud for some reason, but uh, basically, what he's saying here is that um, you took part in this in this gang. You you took a, an oath to this gang or whatever, and uh, he's saying that everybody else did their part in this gang uh you know surprisingly the judges (laughs) surprisingly i guess loyalty is somewhat his thing or something i don't know he's saying that uh we were all in on the gang except for one person one person and he's he's trying to like lie to the kid and tell the kid that that was that was him that he was not in on the gang and because he put his own um I guess, thoughts and morals ahead of the gang's thoughts and morals that he destined the gang for failure. That because he did not give his own share of blood uh, to the gang that uh, the gang was eventually destined for failure and it was his own part, his own, it was the kid's own fault. He says, only each was called upon to empty out his heart into the common and one did not. Can you tell me who that one was? It was you, whispered the kid. You were the one. So... Basically, the kid is saying, I know, <laughs> I, I'm, what, what is he saying? He's saying, I see through your bullshit. I can see it's not me, it's you. You're the one that never truly, you know, gave to the gang. The judge has manipulated the gang all throughout the book. I mean, it's all the judge does. He manipulates Glanton, he manipulates the gang uh, to get what he wants. Um, and the kid is saying, you're the one that never emptied your heart into the gang, and you just want to make me feel bad uh, because you couldn't control me. Um... Which is pretty, uh, pretty profound, I guess. Um, I kind of like that. Um, so, basically, uh, they go in. Uh, the judge leaves. Uh, they finally let him out. He goes and gets the arrow taken out of his leg, and then he has another. Uh, he has another dream about the judge that I want to try to read to you, and I apologize. So basically, um, he has a bunch of dreams about the judge, which, I mean, I would have a few nightmares about the judge uh, myself. Actually, I mean, I have had, not necessarily nightmares, but I've had dreams where the judge has been in my dreams just because I'm reading about him. But um, I can't even imagine, you know, seeing all the things that he's seen and still having dreams about the judge. But uh, basically, of this dream, it says, In that sleep and in sleeps to follow, the judge did visit. Who would come other? A great shambling mutant, silent and serene, Whatever his antecedents, he was something wholly other than their sum. Nor was there a system by which to divide him back into his origins, for he would not go. Whoever would seek out his history through what unraveling of loins and ledger books must stand at least darkened and dumb at the shore of a void without terminus or origin and whatever science he might bring to bear upon the dusty primal matter blowing down out of the millennia which discover no trace of any ultimate atavistic egg by which to reckon his commencing in the white and empty room he stood in his bespoken suit with his hat in his hand and he peered down with his small and lashless pig's eyes wherein this child just 16 years on earth could read whole bodies of decisions not accountable to the courts of men and he saw his own name which nowhere else could he have ciphered out at all logged into the records as a thing already accomplished a traveler known in jurisdictions existing only in the claims of certain uh, pensioners or on old dated maps in his delirium he ransacked the linens of his pallet for arms but there were none the judge smiled the fool was no longer there but another man and this other man could never see in his entirety but he seemed an artisan and a worker in metal the judge shadowed him where he crouched at his trade, but he was a cold forger who worked with the hammer and die, perhaps under some indictment, uh, and an exile from men's fires, hammering out like his own con- conjectural destiny, all through the night of his becoming some corne- coinage for a dawn that would not be. It is the false moneyer with his uh, gravers and burners who seek favor with the judge, and he is at a contriving he is at contriving from cold slag brute in the crucible of face that will pass an image that will render that that will re- render this residual species current in the markets where men barter of this the judge judge and the night does not end so um it's kind of a weird dream uh but what i think was really important about that was uh he's saying whatever his antecedents he was something wholly other than their sum nor there was was their system by which to divide him back into his origins for he would not go so basically antecedents just means origins um what they're saying is uh wherever he came from he's something completely different uh it's almost like they're saying he's not human um which is interesting and you know some I, I kind of said that I thought in the last episode that he was a personification of the devil, um, that he's what represents the devil. And I think that something a little bit more close to the truth is that he just represents general evil, um, evil and corruption, uh, moral corruption, um, he's the personification of evil and corruption. Now you can call that the devil. A lot of people will, I don't know if there's any significance in the difference. Maybe the devil just practices evil. Uh, whereas, you know, the judge even supersedes the devil. You know, the judge is evil. Um, he is evil itself. Uh, you could, I don't think that's unfair to say. I don't, I don't think that's unfair to say. Um, anyway, uh, the kid moves on. Um, basically he just becomes uh a roamer um he never hears it from the priest again which is kind of sad i wanted to know uh the end of the priest that's one thing that kind of disappointed me in the book is that i wanted to know what happened to the priest i wanted some sort of resolution on the priest and we never got that uh which i was a little upset about but you know you'll have that on these big jobs i guess you know um so basically um he starts carrying around this bible that he had found in some mining camps um basically uh he travels all over the place with his bible and it says uh he had a bible that he'd found at the mining camps and he carried this book with him no word of which he could read why does he carry a bible i want to say that maybe it's because he was so attached to the priest um that he knew that it was something significant so he kept the bible um I don't really know a lot of people have kind of um guessed at why he carries the bible around uh, if i i think that because you know my theory last episode was that the kid uh the kid is every one of us the kid is is your human that's grappling with uh good and evil um you know he shows conviction for the bad things that he's done he uh he's still done them just like evil Uh, or he's still done evil, just like all men that, you know, all men are, are somewhat depraved, but he's got this grappling for, for good that I think most men have as well. Uh, I think most men, while at their heart are probably evil, uh, they still grapple for that desire of being good. And I don't know why you could probably ask, um, some theologian or, you know, there's probably plenty of answers in the Bible, um, But he he always grasps for something that is better, uh, that is good, and that's what the Bible is, I think, in this this situation, is that he's carrying around this Bible because he knows it's good, but he can't read a word of it. Um, You know, when you say, you know, a thought that I just had is that... um, they were talking about the voice of God speaking in the lowest of beings, uh, him and the ex-priest were, and, and, and this is a random thought, so I don't actually have it marked. It's one of my, my tabs in here that I don't know which one, but, um, they were talking about God speaking in the lowest of beings. And one thing that we kind of, you know, in, in this society, uh, in the 1800s, it wasn't seen this way, but what do we think of like the lowest of humans now, like the lowest on the totem pole? A lot of them are illiterate, uh, and I think that this is kind of a modern calling to say that, look, you know, um, God speaks in in the lowest of beings. We would say that, you know, some of the lowest of the humans are the illiterate and this illiterate kid carrying around a Bible. I think uh, to me what that means is that um, to have this desire for good and this uh, resistance to evil, I think, happens even to, you know, the least educated, it's just this kind of reinforcement of what the ex-priest said when he said, you know, that God does speak, uh, to the, the lowest of beings, and I don't know if that's right, I don't know, again, I'm just telling you what I think, and all of this could be completely wrong, um, but that's, that's what I'm thinking, so, he keeps going to all these towns, he's just this traveler, never stays in one place, uh, I don't think he ever gets married at all, um, never settles down and then it says uh he never saw the ex-priest again of the judge of the judge of the judge he heard rumor everywhere so every town he's going in he's hearing rumor of this judge uh, which you know is the point of the judge and they talk about that multiple times in the book um so basically um he rides up on this scene and he sees this just massacre of people um so let's see, he says, oh, the kid rose and looked about, this is on page 327, I believe this is still chapter 22, I don't think we've crossed into 23 yet, Um, let's see, sorry, I just want to make sure, yeah, this is still chapter 22, Um, where is this at, Um, okay, yeah, sorry, I lost my page. Uh, the kid rose and looked about at this desolate scene and then he saw alone and upright in a small niche in the rocks an old woman kneeling in a faded rebozo with her eyes cast down he made his way among the corpses and stood before her she was very old and her face was gray and leathery and sand had collected in the folds of her clothing she did not look up the shawl that covered her head was much faded of its color yet it bore like a patent woven into the fabric Sorry, it bore like a patent woven into the fabric to figures and stars and quarter moons and other insignia of a providence unknown to him. He spoke to her in a low voice. He told her that he was an American and that he was a long way from the country of his birth and that he had no family and that he had traveled much and seen many things and had been at war and endured hardships. He told her that he would convey her to a safe place, some party of her country people who would who would welcome her, and that she should join them, for he could not leave her in this place, and she would surely die. He knelt on one knee, resting the life, rifle before him like a staff. Abelita, he said, no puedes eschwarme. He reached into the little cove and touched her arm. She moved slightly, her whole body light and rigid. She weighed nothing. She was just a dried shell, and she had been dead in that place for years. Thought this is pretty significant um he comes up on this old massacre and this old lady that i guess is kneeling in prayer or whatever um she dies upright and it's just very odd it's this like effigy or you know old statue of this lady that uh was dead for a while this mummified shell of a woman that almost like died in meditation it's, it's kind of odd uh but i think the significance here is that he you know he's trying to help this lady get to where she needs to go because he thinks that she's alive and obviously in danger. Cause her whole party just got murdered, but not just apparently a while back, but, um, anyway, uh, just again, kind of speaks to the, I don't know. I don't want to call it good hearted natured. Cause I don't know. I think he's, he might have a taste for mindless violence, but just speaks for the baseline level of compassion in the kid. Um, and, yeah and the kid so take from that what you will uh i just thought it was interesting so basically chapter 23 the final chapter um it starts in 1878 uh i believe that he's 45 at this point um somebody that john david ober guy said like 48 but i think i traced it back um to where him he was 16 in like 49 or something like that yeah 1849 he was 16 um so 1849 i don't know do the math 1849 to 1878 that's what um that's almost 30 years so that's what 29 years 29 plus 16 is uh what is that four plus five so yeah That's like 45 so he's 45 here um i could still be wrong i don't know i'm bad at math anyway He's back on the plains of North Texas, which I uh, I know much about. Uh, not much about, but this is where I'm from. You know, we live in Amarillo right now, but he's on the plains of North Texas in the Abilene uh, Brazos Valley area. Well, I think Brazos Valley is different, sorry. Uh, not Brazos Valley, but the Brazos River area in North Texas, um, from Abilene to Fort Worth, basically. Um, and he's riding through here and... Basically, uh, he runs across this, uh, this band of, of bone pickers, which, um, basically he said, um, I believe somebody has said that, um, okay. Yeah. So I believe that, uh, these are Buffalo bone pickers. I believe that's what they are. I'm trying to look in here and somebody else had said, Uh, earlier I listened to a a YouTube video today where somebody said that, um, they were human skulls and I don't think that's correct. I do believe that they are, uh, bone pickers. So yeah, buffalo bone pickers. I don't see anything in here that says that it's human, human bones. So, uh, yeah, basically what they're coming around to do is pick up all the bones of the old, uh, buffalo that had been shot. Um, They were valuable. Uh, They could make things out of the bones and sell stuff and all that, so they would pick up these bones and go and sell them. comes across this band of of bone pickers, and then these boys come up to him to to talk to him, and um, basically it doesn't really... The dialogue doesn't matter much at all. Not enough for me to try to read it to you. Um, Other than the fact that... um, he starts to really irritate them or they start to irritate him and they ask about his necklace of ears so he goes and he purchases uh, Brown Davy Brown's necklace of ears in uh, I believe it's San Diego maybe um, where he sees Vine and Brown uh, hung and he purchases the ears that uh, were worn and he takes them and keeps them with him for all of these years and finally uh, these kids see it and uh they're asking him um where these ears come from and he told them that they were apaches uh he said oh he said they wasn't cannibals he said they was apaches i know the man that docked them and knowed him and rode with him and seen him hung uh they looked and they grinned and said apaches um so anyway um they don't think that it's Apaches. I I believe racist um, remark in here that all people would consider. I guess somewhat racist. The the kid looked up at him. He says, Apaches. I bet them old Apaches would have given a watermelon a pure fit. What about you all? So he's saying that I think they were probably from black people, not Apaches. Uh, trying to call his bluff. And this is where the man just keeps getting annoyed. Um, so he tells him that's some more of your business. Um so anyway there's one kid in there that uh i believe his name is elrod that keeps uh keeps pushing the man and he finally tells him to go so the guy wakes up um So the guy wakes up in the middle of the night, and the kid's standing over him with a rifle. The kid's gonna kill him with a rifle. Uh, You know, the man—he's—he's called the man now. He's not called the kid. That's an important shift. That when you know he's finally at the age of forty-five, he's called the man. He's not called the kid anymore. Uh, The kid rolls over and shoots him. The kid expects this, uh, you know, and Elrod fucked with the wrong dude. Uh, (laughs) He's not the guy to to mess with. Um, And the man rolls over and shoots him. Didn't want to have to shoot him, but he did. Um, The the, the man says, you wouldn't have lived anyway, which means, you know, you ain't hard. Um, You know, you were soft the whole time. You were just bluffing. And uh, basically in the gray dawn so in the morning uh they came up to where the dead kid was and they they talked to the man and uh oh the man says we don't they say we don't want no trouble mister we just want to take him with us the man says take him uh says i know we'd buried him on this prairie they came from they came out here from kentucky mister this tyke and his brother his mama and daddy both died his granddaddy was killed by a lunatic and buried in the woods like a dog he's never known good fortune in his life and now he ain't got a soul in this world Randall, you take a good look at the man that has made you an orphan. So, basically, um... And by the way, McCarthy's English, which I understand here, and this is a quote, but it says, Randall, you take a good look at the man that has made you a orphan. Which is not, I mean, it should be an orphan, because O is a vowel. Anyway, now you wonder why I have such a hard time reading out loud that this book is shit like that. Um, anyway, if you'll remember, the scene with the traveler... Um, he says, this Tyke and his brother, his mom and daddy, both dead. His granddaddy was killed by a lunatic and buried in the woods like a dog. He's never known good fortune in his life, and now he ain't got a soul in this world. So basically, uh, this kid is the granddad of the Traveler that we talked about, I believe, in Episode 3. Um, which is kind of wild, and, and it, it just gives resolution to the story that um, this vi- this violence that, that comes from... Uh, you know, fatherless children, you know, the man in this book, uh once his once his mom died, his dad was absent. Dad not even close to there. His dad was taken up by liquor and the kid, you know, in him brewed a taste for mindless violence. Uh the kid that he shot, this Elrod boy, um because his dad was, you know, euchred out of his patrimony, I believe is the way that McCarthy puts it in there. Uh, because this dad wasn't allowed to have a dad. Uh, basically the thought is that he became a shitbag as well. And then Elrod, um, coming out here with his mom and his, oh, oh, his mom and daddy both died. Um, okay. So basically, uh, his mom and his dad both died on the, uh, on the, on the prairie. Um, his granddaddy was, a yeah, so, um, this Tyke and his brother, yeah, okay, so, I guess his mom and dad died back in Kentucky, and then, uh, the kid and his brother come out on this little bone-picking expedition, I guess, uh, so what that, what that makes me think is that the, it's, it's a, it's a lineage of, uh, killers of men, that, you know, men who kill other men, and that, um, are absent create this lineage and this wave of other men that want to kill men. I don't really know what that means, other than it's just ingrained in us, and uh, it, it's just generational. This this mindless lust for violence that that men often have, um, and you know, not to be super. Uh, I guess pedantic or or overly literal with it, but um, this is why fatherlessness is such a big deal because it has generational impact. Uh, if you just decide to skip out on your child, don't expect that child's child to be Um, well taken care of don't expect that child's child to to have a good head on his shoulders you know a lot of times they do Um, a lot of times they don't want to be like their dad so they live up to it and what we see today but i think more often it just creates more problems for the kid Um, i don't know if that's what McCarthy's trying to get out here with this story about the traveler. Um, but in just an uber practical sense that, um, probably it's not meant to be taken. Uh, that's what it kind of means to me is it's just further. It's, it's a good representation for why fathers are so important. Um, being a good father is so important for society is that you don't have shit like this. Um, and when you see uh certain places that aren't doing too hot right now with crime and and pointless violence uh they don't have very good fathers uh if you look at a lot of the cities in america where a lot of this pointless crime happens gang violence um you know even a lot of trailer parks rural communities where stupid violence happens and people are just about worthless uh fathers good fathers are are hard to be uh are hard to find um and this is just kind of a story that, that affirms that, so basically, he goes on, and he ends up in this bar, um, and the judge finds him, um, let's see, yeah, the judge finds him, we're in the last chapter, chapter 23, he doesn't want to talk to the judge, of course, I mean, this is, what is it, 20-something years later, uh, The judge is still around because the judge never dies, but uh, he doesn't want to talk to the judge, and the judge insists that they talk, which, why would he not? Um, So basically, oh, uh, this is a little bit more evidence to the fact that I think that he wanted uh, the kid to be his son. He says, I recognized you when I first saw you, and yet you were a disappointment to me, then and now. Even so, at the last, I find you here with me. I ain't with you. The judge raised his bald brow. Not he said he looked about him in a puzzled and artful way as he was a passable thespian i never come here hunting you what then said the judge what would i want with you i came here same reason as any man and what reason would that Er, oh and what reason is that what reason is what that these men are here they come here to have a good time the judge watched him he began to point out various men in the room and ask if these men were here for a good time or if indeed uh, they knew why they were here at all um it goes into a lot of nonsense you know existential kind of nonsense um one thing that uh i think is important let's see right here i believe oh uh he starts talking about a ceremony a, a ceremony of blood he says an event a ceremony the orchestration thereof the overture carries certain marks of dis- of decisiveness it includes the slaying of a large bear the evening's progress will not appear strange or unusual even to those who question the rightness of the events so ordered so what happens is uh there's a bear dancing on stage and if you read the book you would know this uh there's a bear dancing on stage and somebody just shoots it for no reason like and there's a girl that is with the bear It's, it's kind of a weird scene but again you've got to think that this is a you know rather surreal novel and it's um Things happened like that back then they've got a bear dancing on the stage in this in this popular bar for some reason i don't know why and somebody shoot it you know shot it for some reason i don't know why anyway he says a ceremony then one could well argue that there there are not categories of no ceremony but only ceremonies of greater or lesser degree and deferring to this argument we will say that this is a ceremony of a certain magnitude perhaps more commonly called a ritual a ritual includes the letting it flood letting of blood rituals which fail in this requirement are but mock rituals here every man knows the false at once never doubt it that feeling in the in the beast in the breast that evokes a child's memory of loneliness such as when the others have gone and only the game is left with its solitary participant a solitary game without opponent where only the rules are at hazard don't look away we are not speaking in mysteries. You of all men are no stranger to that feeling, the emptiness and despair. It is with what it is that with which it is that which we take arms against, is it not? It is not blood to the tempering agent in the mortar which bonds. So is not blood the tempering agent in the mortar which bonds? The judge leaned closer. What do you think death is, man? Of whom do we speak when we speak of a man who was who was and is not? Are these blind riddles or are they not some part of every man's jurisdiction what is death if not an agency and whom does he intend toward look at me i don't like craziness said the kid nor i nor i bear with me look at them now pick a man any man that man there see him that man hatless you know his opinion of the world you can read it in his face in his stance yet his compl- his complaint that a man's life is no bargain masks the actual case with him which is that men will not do as he wishes them to do. So basically what he's saying is that, um, well, I don't know, but, um, he's kind of talking all this nonsense about, um, how everything in life is a, is a ceremony and that it all comes down to, uh, the letting of blood, uh, rituals which fail in this requirement are, but mock rituals, uh, right here. He says, um, where there's only the rules that have hazard, um, basically let's see it's it's kind of this this idea that um there is only only war it, you know a lot of this think that that the judge in this novel is uh is this kind of nihilist uh, view of the world that there is only that there is nothing, or that the world is all bad? I don't necessarily think that it's true that the judge is a nihilist per se, uh, because everything is bad uh, when it comes to a nihilist. You know, everything is bad. Every, the world is just fallen. Uh, there is nothing good to be had in the world, and I don't know that um, that's what the judge is. I don't know that that is evil. I think that the judge, um, his, uh, his theory is that, um, his theory is that, uh, the only good thing is is the letting of blood. This, uh, this game that we play, this dance that we have, uh, of war, of each man trying to get the better of another man, that's what's good in this world. Uh, It's something completely different than nihilism, I think. Uh, that's just my, my thought, but, um... So okay, yeah, uh, that feeling in the breast that evokes a child's memory of loneliness, such as when others have gone, and only the game is left with a solitary participant, a solitary game without opponent, where the only where only the rules are at hazard. You know, again, I don't know what he's saying here, and I think that's the point. Uh, I think that the judge talks a lot of bullshit, and I think that McCarthy wrote this uh, in the way that, you know, you're struggling to try to understand what he's saying, and I think the point is that it doesn't make any sense. Uh, it's elaborate, it's grand, but really, it's all just smoke and mirrors, and it's just masking the fact that uh, this personification of evil—the only thing that he wants—is the letting of blood. Now, you could tell me that I'm wrong and that there's something extremely profound, uh, maybe not good, but profound in what the judge is saying, and that there's a lot to be taken out of it. I haven't found that, and I'm of—well, uh, some would say below average—but I think I'm of average intelligence. Uh, I think I have decent reading comprehension skills and I just haven't found much in what he's saying and this is exactly what the kid says he says I don't like craziness so to this whole like three fucking paragraphs of, of gibberish the kid says I don't like craziness um, that's kind of how I feel every time that the judge speaks uh, even though there are some things to be found on it so maybe that's kind of just the point is that you're not supposed to understand what the judge is saying uh, that it is just evil and you're supposed to accept that it's evil and that's the deal uh, maybe that's maybe that's the point. That's something that I just came up with. Maybe maybe that's a lot of cope. Maybe I'm coping um, with the fact that I don't understand what he's saying. Uh, maybe that's true. If you have any thoughts on it, comment, I guess, uh, on Instagram or let me know, because most of you that listen to this have my contact information. So let me know what you think. But I'm stu- I'm really getting to the point to where I just think that the judge is blabbering. And that's the whole point. That he is this personification of evil, and that uh, like the kid, we're not supposed to fall for it, and we're supposed to chalk it up as craziness. Um, so he, you know, he comes in here and he does say some things that you probably could um, get something out of, but no more than the surface level. You know, he says that hatless man in there. Um, his uh the actual case with him is that men won't do what he wishes them to do and you can see that you know the judge values manipulation overall and that's why he hates the kid so much is because he can't manipulate him um so he says it's very nature is stone which is kind of important but um let's see oh here's another one he says oh he poured the tumbler full drink up he said the world goes on we have dancing nightly and this night is no exception the straight and winding are one and now that you are here what do the years count since the last uh since last we two met together men's memories are uncertain and the past that was differs little from the past that was not uh this is an important kind of point in the book and this is why you know, written in, it's a historical novel. So this book is not historical fact, uh, but it's historically, uh, how do I say this? It's historically accurate. Um, all the things in this book, uh, could have happened. Um, you know, all of the things in this book, uh, it's, it's very in line with history and the, the time period mccarthy did all of his effort to make this to where if this did actually happen you wouldn't be able to to disprove it really um other than a few things here and there but um what he's saying here is that uh it says uh, men's memories are uncertain and the past that was differs little from the past that was not uh, we all know what reality is Re- reality is what we're seeing and hearing. Um, there's a a disconnection in reality, uh, when we all aren't actively observing it in the moment and it's in the past. Uh, what he's saying here is that the past that was, uh, Oh, the, the past that was differs little from the past that was not. So the only thing differentiating from an actual past versus, uh, you know, the past that we all tell ourselves is men's memories. Um, What do we all collectively agree upon that happened? What was written? You know what I mean? Um, How do we, you know, perceive what was written? It's kind of a weird thought. Uh, And I think it's pretty important that this is how, I think that this is how evil wins. So I think this is how the judge continues to win, um, continues to keep being evil, and how evil um, continues to pass on in this world is because the past that was differs uh, from the past that was not um we don't always remember the past as it was and that's how evil continues to to move forward they say you know history repeats itself uh that's because i don't think we as as men as humans have the capacity to actually remember um what happened in the past and i mean you can't cuz it already happened you know what is time what is space i don't know um getting metaphysical but Uh, basically, it's just a really important thought that, um, without an actual, you know, accurate recording and understanding of the past, which can never happen because you could never record everything, uh, evil will continue on. And that's, that's the one way that evil does continue on is because the past that was differs little from the past that was not. Um, and he, he challenges him on this, you know, um, he says you know where have you been and he he asked him he asked the 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 man now uh do you know that those places are still uh there and the kid says that's crazy you know of course they're still there and he says well you don't know anybody that says that they're you know like he's challenging him you don't know that those places are still there they could have been destroyed the day that you left or whatever and and the kid's not buying it very much um but uh he starts to talk about the fiddler in the dance he says i tell you this as war becomes dishonored and its nobility called into question those honorable men who recognize the sanctity of blood will become excluded from the dance which is the warrior's right and thereby and thereby will the dance become a false dance and the dancers false dancers and yet there will be one there always who is a true dancer and you, and can you guess who that is the kid says you ain't nothing you speak truer than you know, but I will tell you, only that man who has offered up himself entire to the blood of war, who has been the to the floor of the pit and seen horror in the round and learned at last that it speaks to his inmost heart. Only that man can dance. Even a dumb animal can dance, said the kid. The judge set the bottle on the bar. Hear me, man, he said. There is room on stage, on the stage for one beast and one alone. All others are destined for a night that is eternal and without name. One by one they will step down into darkness before the footlamps, bears that dance, bears that don't. Basically what he's saying is that um the people like him who take up and and value the sanctity of bloodletting at the at the hands of another man, this 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 war um that is continuing and eternal in all of humanity and all of men, uh he's saying that those who value that, eventually there will only be one, and the judge's goal is to, to be that one. He says, and can you guess who that might be? He thinks he's the one, uh, the true dancer, the only person that really values uh, the blood of war. And the kid says, you ain't nothing. And the judge says, you speak truer than you know, but I will tell you. Um, I don't know why he gives the kid credit there, you speak truer than you know, why the judge is maybe saying that I ain't nothing. Um I don't know why. Maybe because the judge knows he ain't nothing and it's just the war. Like that is something, the blood of war. Maybe it's saying that what he's saying is I'm no man. I am evil. Uh, the kid says you ain't nothing. And you know, what is nothing? What is something I guess maybe is where the judge is going is that I ain't nothing, but I'm evil. Uh, maybe that's what it is. I don't know. Uh, once again, it could all just be nonsense on purpose. As you can tell, I'm a little irritated with the books. So I don't understand it. <laughs> um, so anyway, the kid uh, the kid goes out to what they call the Jakes. I believe it's the bathroom. Um, so he opens... Oh, there he opened the rough board door of the Jakes and stepped in. The judge was seated upon the closet. He was naked and he rose up smiling and gathered him into his arms against his immense and terrible flesh and shot the wooden bar latch home behind him. In the saloon, two men who wanted to buy... The hide we're looking for the owner of the bear so basically they're trying to (laughs) buy the hide of the bear um they uh they go out there to uh oh they try to one of them wants to go into the into the shitter the jake as they call it uh and this guy's telling him i wouldn't go in there and uh he opens the door and he says good god almighty what is it he didn't answer uh, so we never find out what actually happens to the kid. Obviously the kid's dead or the man is dead. Um, we never find out in what manner, uh, the kid was mutilated, uh, into death, which it's gotta be something pretty bad. Cause I mean, they just watched a bear get shot in the head and it was no big deal. Um, these were violent times and for the guy to go, good God almighty and not speak a word of it, uh, it had to have been pretty bad for the man. Uh, we don't know what happened. I don't, am not even going to guess at what happened. Um, So basically, they all start to dance again. Um, Nobody cares, which, again, in this time, (laughs) makes a lot of sense. Um, So... It says, uh, they're, they're sawing on the fiddle. It says, and they are dancing, the board four slamming under the jack boots, and the fiddlers grinning hideously over their canted pieces, towering over them all as the judge, and he is naked dancing, his small feet lively and quick and now in double time and bowing to the ladies, huge and pale and hairless like an enormous infant. He never sleeps, he says. He says he'll never die. He bows to the fiddlers and sachets backwards and throws back his head and laughs deep in his throat, and he is a great favorite, the judge. He wafts his hat and, and the lunar dome of his skull passes palely under the lamps, and he swings about and takes possession of one of the fiddles, and he pirouettes and makes a pass, two passes, dancing and fiddling at once. His feet are light and nimble. He never sleeps. He says that he will never die. He dances in the light and in shadow, and he is a great favorite. He never sleeps, the judge. He is dancing, dancing. He says that he will never die. The end. So, the judge lives. Uh, the judge is the only one out of the Glanton gang that lives, uh, and that's because he's, he's not a man. I mean, it's pretty evident at this point that he is something other than a man, and again, I, I think he's the personification of evil or the personification personification of the devil, uh, and this book is seen as this kind of, again, I don't want to say nihilistic, but this really negative worldview that the only thing that continues on is evil. The only thing that continues on in this world, um, is evil. And I think somebody said that it goes into the, the ultimate depravity of the man that McCarthy is hinting here that man are just at their base, uh, evil beings. And that, um, essentially, basically, that, yeah, man is just evil from birth. Uh, in birth, in death, that man is man is evil. Um, and, you know, Christians, their their response to that is, well, you know, Jesus died for our sins, and even though we're evil, uh, God has allowed Jesus to take on that burden for us, um, and we get to be redeemed through Christ. Uh, McCarthy apparently doesn't take that... Here. <laughs> um, there is really no redemption now. I, I'm kind of wrestling with a different viewpoint on that. A lot of people think that you know the kid, this uh, what I like to say is is the personification of persons, um, which is a silly statement, but uh, he's this representation of humans in general. Um, a lot of people think that he ends up dying and that all good in the world is shot by. Not literally shot, but all good in the world is overtaken by this judge, this this personification of evil, and he will continue to live on, and it's all evil from here on out. And it's very, um, I again, I don't want to say nihilistic because uh, the judge still thinks that wo- that you know war is good, uh, so maybe it, maybe it's a nihilistic point of view from a human perspective, but the judge is not a nihilist. I don't think the judge is a nihilist, um, but maybe McCarthy is. I don't know, but I i don't know what i'm grappling with here is that nobody really wants to live forever uh if you ask somebody whether they could just live forever or if they had to die eventually if they're really thinking about it they would say i would rather die eventually because it makes things mean something um part of the reason part of the only reason that how do i put this the only thing that means anything to the judge is the killing of men and i believe that If you're going to live forever, if you're going to dance forever, he never sleeps, he'll never die, like the judge. uh, Maybe the only thing that you can find um, good in, and this is going to be a controversial statement, uh, maybe the only thing that you can find good in is giving other men uh, what you cannot have, and that is death. Um, I don't know if that's smart or... Profoundly stupid or not Uh, But you know Something tells me that the kid Even though nothing magnificent happened He never had this huge triumph over the judge Other than the fact that he got to die And the judge didn't Um, I don't know if there's anything there or not And I've I've been trying to wrap my head around that all day uh, Because it just entered my head today The day that I'm recording Uh, But maybe the kid isn't at a complete loss Uh, Maybe You know Maybe while we see the judge as the winner in this circumstance, uh, and, you know, the kid carries a Bible, maybe that's a hint that the kid is is in some way saved, even though he has to kill a you know, 14-year-old that was trying to kill him. Uh, maybe that's a hint that the man is is saved uh, and that the, the real W here, the real win here, is that the kid gets to die and the judge doesn't. The, the judge has to stay on this world, uh, this fallen and depraved world. McCarthy's already admitted uh, you know, through um, the triumph of the judge over the man that this world is fallen and depraved. Uh, and by the way, we don't know where the priest went either, which is odd. I don't know what to make of that. Um, but if, if we follow this dynamic of the man being all of us, all of people, of humankind, and then the judge being evil, this personification of evil, and what I think the priest... Um, and again, the priest was a piece of shit too. I mean, he killed a bunch of Indians. So I again, I don't know how to square that circle. But if the priest is this kind of dynamic of good and and the kid is is trying to find his way between the two, um, the man, you know, uh, we see this as a triumph for the judge because the judge ends up killing the kid. Uh, but maybe the lesson here is that um, death is not the loss here. It's, it's the fact that uh, the judge has to live on forever. I don't, I don't know if that holds any water. I really don't. Uh, that's just what I'm thinking. I haven't been able to find any, any correspondence with that. Um, cause everything is, is kind of taking this novel for face value and saying, oh yeah, it's this novel that basically says that death, you know, evil and death is everything. And actually, um, in the name of it a meridian line i believe is the the longitude lines so they call those meridians so basically it goes from north pole to south pole and you cut the the world into meridians um basically the the title blood meridian this comes from that john david elbert guy is that you know the whole world uh, all of the meridians of the world uh, will be coated in blood and it always will be blood Um, It always will be evil. Evil lives on in the stones and trees and bones of things. Um, That's kind of the idea, that evil continues to live on. The judge never stops dancing, and it's always a dance. Um, It's always something that we think that we want that we don't like dancing. Uh, I don't know if that makes any sense or not, but um, I don't know. I'm just starting to think that uh, maybe, maybe that's not true, that... And I mean, I know it's not true for my own personal beliefs, but even in the novel, maybe that's not what McCarthy meant. Uh, Maybe by allowing the kid to die, uh, or maybe by the kid being defeated by the judge, even though evil killed the kid in this world, maybe that was the actual advantage, that the kid gets to die. I I don't know. I don't know if that makes any sense, Uh, and I'm talking to try to justify it. Uh, Maybe I'll have this conversation with a few other people and see what they think, but anyway, guys, we're at the end of the book. Uh, all in all, um, I thought it was a really great book. Honestly. Um, it's a, it's a work of art. Uh, that being said, I did not enjoy the book. (laughs) I really didn't, especially having to review it. Um, this was, this was awful guys, honestly, I'm trying to review it and I hope, you know, you can see some of my struggle of trying to, to, to make, um, sense of, uh, this book. Um, it was an awful book. It was an awful one to pick as our first fiction to read on the purpose podcast, but I think we got through it and, um, I'm not going to promise that we'll revisit it, but I think as my literary skills, uh, grow and get better, um, it wouldn't be a bad one to revisit, especially when I've got more listeners that are probably going to follow along. So don't take my opinions on this as my final opinions on this. Don't even take them as truth. Uh, you know, don't take them as the right opinion. Um, they probably aren't, and I'm telling you right now that I don't know what this book means. I don't. <laughs> I don't know what this book means. I have an idea. I don't think anybody knows what the fuck this book means. I don't even know if Cormac McCarthy knows what this book means. Um, it's incredibly difficult, uh, but it is a good book. Um, the questions that I that it makes you ask... Um, are good questions. You know, something that I got from meditations when you listen to that book club from Marcus Aurelius is that, uh, value is not found in the answers. It's found in the questions. Uh, that's where the value in any sort of interaction is found is in the questions. And I would say the same for, uh, the relationship between book and reader. Uh, the, the answers that a book gives you aren't always, the best value. And oftentimes they're not, it's the questions. Um, let's take a super simple example, leadership strategy and tactics. Everybody knows it's my favorite book, um, favorite book, pound for pound. Um, that book has a lot of answers in it. A lot of people, you know, I even got a lot of answers from that book, but I think what the, the more, the more valuable part of that book was the questions that it made me ask of myself. Uh, am I good enough in this aspect? Am I humble enough to be a leader? Uh, am I capable of doing this? Uh, yeah, it gave me answers, but if I never would have asked those questions, I never would have been open for the answers. So, even though, and you may be a little bit pissed off, maybe you're, maybe this this podcast will get like one listen, and it'll be me reviewing it. Uh, maybe nobody listens to this, but if you are listening to this and you made it through all the other three, uh episodes of blood meridian you're like well this dude gave me no answers at all uh you know these episodes were pretty much worthless if that's what you're thinking um yes i agree with you i've been very disappointed in myself to not be able to give you all more answers on what this means trust me i've been (laughs) it has been very hard for me to come in here sit down do weeks worth of research um and you know, not have something substantial to offer you as far as what this book is saying to you. Like I was able to on leadership strategies and tactics, meditations, um, which those are nonfiction books and I get it. But, uh, yeah, I know I haven't given you many answers. I understand that. And it sucks. Um, I hate being the guy that doesn't have the answers. Uh, but what I like is being the guy that has the questions. And even though I'm not the guy that has the questions in this scenario, McCarthy is, um, This book is full of great questions, and I believe that the way you try to answer them, you know, the questions are the value, and so answer them in your own way. Again, I was left with more questions than answers. I asked a lot of questions to uh, to myself on this podcast, on these episodes. Um, That's what you should be doing as well. So I'm sorry I didn't have more answers, uh, but really try to dig into the questions of this book and see what your own thoughts are and that's the value in this book Uh, this book is not a good time to read it's not fun to read Uh, not at all it's a very important book because of the questions that it makes you ask so anyway guys thanks for hanging in uh on this podcast, uh, on on this book club, uh, thanks for getting in there. Thanks for reading Blood Meridian. I, it, it's really great. I, I really think it is. And if nothing else, is I mean, it's a work of art. Uh, anything that I know about literature, which is very little, uh, the amount of effort and. Um, Artistic nature that was put into this book is is pretty astounding, and the amount of ties that it has to the real world, and the the lengths and efforts that he went to went through to uh, went the lengths that he went to and the efforts that he went through to make this uh, book historically accurate are pretty insane. Um, so anyway guys tune in to these this uh, the episode of the purpose podcast on Sunday uh, we drop every single Sunday and every Wednesday for the purpose book club so tune in guys I appreciate it Thanks